Welcome to the podcast of the United Church of Bogota. We are a Bible-based church ministering to the English-speaking community in Bogota, Colombia. We invite you to join our diverse fellowship as we encounter God in worship and experience the impact of His grace on every part of our lives and in our world. To learn more, please visit our website at ucbogota.org. morning. This morning we're going to be continuing in our series of the Psalms. I believe we have this week and next week in the Psalms, and then we're going to switch to something new with our new pastor who will be here next week. So that's exciting. Um, the Psalms. This is, uh, these are songs that were written for the Old Testament people for them to sing, teach them how to praise the Lord, uh, teach them about God, to shape them and to disciple them as they became followers of Jesus. Um, our psalm this morning is Psalm chapter 68. You can go ahead and change, uh, turn your Bible, turn in your Bible to that passage. It's a really long one. We're going to read the whole thing once through, but we're not going to be able to focus on every part of this psalm this morning as I preach, unless you want to be here um, until this afternoon sometime, um, which I do not. So we will be focusing on specific parts, but as we read the whole thing, I want you guys to hear it. I want you guys to, to listen to it, because the majority of the psalm is just about praise. It's just about all the people of the world praising our God. So we're going to hear the praise, and then we're going to talk about why the people are praising him this morning. So would you please stand, and we're going to read together Psalm 68. I am reading from the New International version, and it will be on your screens as well. May God arise, may his enemies be scattered, may his foes flee before him. May you blow them away like smoke as wax melts before the fire. May the wicked perish before God, and may the righteous be glad and rejoice before God. May they be happy and joyful. Sing to God, sing in praise of his name. Extol him who rides on the clouds, rejoice before him. His name is the Lord, a father to the fatherless, a defender of widows is God in his holy dwelling. God sets the lonely in families. He leads out the prisoners with singing, but the rebellious live in a sun-scorched land. When you, God, went out before your people, when you marched to the wilderness, the earth shook, the heavens poured down rain before God, the one of Sinai, before God, the one of Israel. You gave abundant showers, O God. You refreshed your weary inheritance. Your people settled in it. And from your bounty, God, you provided for the poor. The Lord announces the word, and the women who proclaim it are a mighty throng. Kings and armies flee in haste. The, pe- the women at home divide, divide the plunder. Even while you sleep among the sheep pens, the wings of my dove are sheathed with silver, its feathers with shining gold. When the Almighty scattered the kings of the land, he was like snow fallen on Mount Salmon. Mount Bashan, majestic mountain. Mount Bashan, rugged mountain. Why gaze in envy, you rugged mountain, at the mountain where God chooses to reign, where the Lord himself will dwell forever? The chariots of God are tens of thousands and thousands of thousands. The Lord has come from Sinai into his sanctuary. When you ascended on high, you took many captives. You received gifts from people even from the rebellious, that you, Lord God, might dwell with them, might dwell there. Praise be to the Lord, to God our Savior, who daily bears our burdens. 
Our God is a God who saves. From the sovereign Lord comes escape from death. Surely God will crush the heads of his enemies, the hairy crowns of those who go on in their sins. The Lord said, I will bring them from Bashan and bring them from the depths of the sea that your feet may wade in the blood of your foes while your tongues, while the tongues of your dogs have their share. Your possession, God, has come into view. The procession, the procession of my God and King into the sanctuary. In front are the singers, after them the musicians, with them are the young women playing their timbrels. Praise God in the great congregation. Praise the Lord in the assembly of Israel. There is a little tribe of Benjamin leading them. There is the great throng of Judah's princes, and there the princes of Zebulun and Naphtali. Summon your power, God. Show us your strength, our God, as you have done before. Because of your temple at Jerusalem, kings will bring you gifts. Rebuke the beast among the reeds, the herd of bulls among the calves of the nations. Humbled may the beast bring bars of silver, scatter the nations who delight in war. Envoys will come from Egypt. Cush will submit herself to God. Sing to God, you kingdoms of the earth. Sing praise to the Lord, to him who rides across the highest heavens, the ancient heavens, who thunders with mighty praise, mighty voice. Proclaim the power of God, whose majesty is over Israel, whose power is in the heavens. You, God, are awesome in your sanctuary. The God of Israel gives power and strength to his people. Praise be to God. You may be seated. Father God, thank you for this psalm. Thank you for what this psalm reveals to us about who you are, what you do for your people, what it looks like to live where you reign. Uh, may praise come from our lips as we learn more about you this morning. I pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. When I was younger, my, my grandmother um, lived in Williamsburg, Virginia, and she lived in this large house, and we would go to visit her on holidays and on special occasions. And one thing was always clear when you got to my grandmother's house. Everything had a place. It was basically like a museum. You walk in and every piece of artwork, every strange trinket that she had, every dish, every magazine, every sofa, every piece of furniture, every fork in the kitchen had a very specific place that it went. So orderly. In fact, you would walk into her bathroom and her bathroom would be pristine. It's like she had never even used it before. Her makeup would be perfectly organized on the counter as well as all of the other things. She would have like flowers in there and she would have like one of those uh, paddings on the toilet seat and a little carpet thing that went on top and the water on the toilets was always blue but she kept cleaner in there so whenever the, the, the water ran through she would always, it would always be clean. Everything had to always be clean at my grandmother's house. In fact, when we went to go stay there, anytime we went to stay there, she was so excited to see us, gave us these big hugs. But the next morning, if our bed was not made and our clothes were not picked up, we would definitely get a lecture because she keeps her house clean. Where my grandmother lived, she was the queen. And where she was queen, things were clean. Um... What's it like? So if that's, if that's what it's like when you go to my grandmother's house, what is it like when we go to the place where our God reigns, where our God is in charge? What are the things that mark his territory, his kingdom? Just like when you walk into my grandmother's house, you can immediately know that it's my grandmother's house because of the way she is orderly and organized. What is it that you can see, feel, taste, touch, in the kingdom of God. 
There's some imagery in this passage that really strikes me. Maybe your eyes glazed over it as we were reading it. It took me a few times of reading it to really kind of understand what it was saying. But this is verses 15 and 16. It says, Mount Bashan, majestic mountain. Mount Bashan, rugged mountain. Why gaze in envy, you rugged mountain, at the mountain where God chooses to reign, where the Lord himself will dwell forever? The psalmist gives us this image of Mount Bashan. Mount Bashan would have been this mountain just northeast of the Jordan River, so kind of on the outskirts of Israel. Um, it would have been these big, humongous mountain ranges, just like these, these craggy rocks. Um, the, the psalmist here describes it as majestic and rugged. It's, just, it's a big deal. And so you look at it and you're like, that is a great mountain. But yet these mountains in this passage are looking at envy, at this little kind of ridge, very low hill called Zion. Compared to, compared to the great craggy, majestic Bashan Mountain, Zion looked like nothing. Yet they look in envy at, at Zion. Why? Because Zion is where God has chosen to establish his kingdom. It is the place where God has chosen to dwell it's envious because God is dwelling there and where God, God dwells, it's apparently an envious place. It's apparently something you want to be, somewhere you want to live. This song gives us a hint as to why it is envious to live where God reigns. Because where God reigns, these are my two points this morning, there is justice and there is salvation. Where God reigns, there is justice and there is salvation. Where God reigns, there is justice. What does justice mean? Justice is for things to be whole. If things, something is just, that means uh, the fractures or the damage or the destruction that has been done to something has been made right. Particularly in society, when society is broken or functioning poorly, justice would be to bring it to a place where it is functioning in the way it is meant to function in the way that is best for human flourishing and the good of one another. Verses 5 to 6 give us an image of what justice looks like in the kingdom of God, where God reigns, the downtrodden are lifted up. Verse 5, a father to the fatherless is God, a defender of widows is God in his holy dwelling. God sets the lonely in families, he leads out the prisoners with singing, but the rebellious live in a sun-scorched land. Compared to the land where God does not reign, inside the kingdom of God, those who are down low are lifted up. Those who are oppressed are freed. He particularly talks about the orphan, the widow, the lonely, and the uh, captive here in this passage. Let's go through each of those individually. What is the orphan? An orphan, I mean, we know what an orphan is, but an orphan is someone who has lost their parents. In this Old Testament world, that could be someone whose parents have died or someone whose parents have potentially abandoned them for um, certainly a sad reason, whatever it is. So this orphan is then left without any rights. They have no protector above them. They have no uh, provider for them. The orphans did not have a place in society. The government 
the, the, the secular governments of the world did not take care of orphans. That was not a priority for them. So um, orphans would have just had to fight for their own lives. They would have been scratching for their existence, just on the outskirts of society, trying to make a living for themselves. But in the kingdom of God, what is it like in the kingdom of God? He's a father to the fatherless. In the kingdom of God, orphans are adopted. They are not only adopted, but they are given the full rights of sons. They are even written into the will of the father. They are given dignity and honor as a child of the king. Who is the widow? The widow is obviously someone who has lost their spouse, has lost their husband. Um, and in this Old Testament, this time period, the widows were particularly um, ripe for abuse. A widow would have been able to be taken advantage of more easily because they did not have rights in society. They could not testify in court. They no longer had someone to, to stand up for them. But God, in the kingdom of God, the widow is defended. It says he is the defender of widows. Not only does he defend them from abuse and mistreatment, but he also gives them standing and dignity. In the kingdom of God, widows have a place. They are fully human. They're not just you know less than because they don't have a husband. They are fully human. They have standing and dignity. In fact, the Old Testament law in the nation of Israel required that if a widow lost her husband, the husband's family was responsible to take care of her. This is an unusual law in these times. But God protects the widow. Who are the lonely? This is a little more broad. This isn't just a particular category, but all who feel like outcasts or without community or friendless. God sees the plight of the lonely and he gives them family. He invites them into his people. His people, God's people, are called to be family to the lonely. The lonely can be people who are single. I'm not saying people who are single are necessarily lonely, but I'm saying that people who long to be married but are not, the church has the opportunity, God's people has the opportunity to be family to these people. Who are the prisoners? Prisoners here aren't people who are paying penance for crimes that they have committed, but prisoners are people who are kept captive for unjust reasons, who are oppressed. So this is anyone who is oppressed, who is kept from freedom, kept from full dignity. This can be physical oppression, this can be emotional oppression, social oppression, whatever it is. But God... What does God do? God frees the prisoner from their oppression. He sets the captives free. He leads them out of their chains. And not only does he free them, but their, their cries of pain, their cries of anguish, turn to cries of joy. This always, whenever you see this imagery in Scripture of the captives being set free, it reminds me of the, the Hymno Nacional de Colombia, right? The, what are the words of the first verse? Words are the humanity in data, like the entirety of humanity is in chains and they're moaning and they're crying out, but they have immortal joy, immortal jubilee, because this light is coming. The light of hope is coming to release them from their chains. 
God is coming to set the captive free, is coming to remove oppression, is coming to restore dignity, is coming to bring justice. All this sounds nice and good and, you know, that sounds like wonderful, but how is this true? Because we don't always see it. Well, on one hand, there is a a, a future spiritual element to this in the sense that one day God will return and he will make this world look this way. A place where widows are taken care of, where there are no widows, where there are no orphans, where there are no um, lonely people, where there is no oppression. We are looking forward to that day. And this psalm gives us a sense of the heart of God and we get to see a picture of what he longs to create in this world. That is our future hope. And as Christians, we can be sure that that hope will come true. But what about now? What about now? What does this have to do with us now? Where does God's kingdom reign right now? I'll tell you where it's supposed to reign. It's supposed to reign in the church. The church is supposed to be the kingdom of God on earth. God's people, his pueblo, right? That means we as the church need to be fighting for justice. Need to be people who make justice happen, who need to be the hands and feet of God as he seeks to bring about his justice to the world. I'm not calling for a particular political stance, but what I am calling is for us as people to have an eye for the needy, to have an eye for the oppressed, to have an eye for the lonely, to have an eye for those who have been whose standing and rights have been taken away, and to seek to be agents giving those rights to them, giving identity, giving dignity. What are some ways that we can do this. Um, We can go out of our way to care for single mothers and fathers. We can go out of our way to visit those who are in need, who are in the hospital, to bring community to those people. To provide not only physical needs, but also relational needs. The elderly, often the elderly are alone, have are lonely or in desperate need, cannot provide for themselves, we can be a community that takes care of these people. Do we have eyes to see the lonely? Those who are lonely even here in this congregation this morning when we're out there drinking our coffee and eating our snacks, do we have eyes to see those who are on the fringes, who aren't connected to the community? And are we trying to bring them in to the family of the church? Is our community a place where people from any background, any social status can come and feel that they have dignity and worth? Do we have generous hearts, hearts that overflow with the knowledge of all the gifts that God has given to us and desire to give those gifts to other people? Not just our money, but our time, our other resources, our status, using that for the benefit of other people, benefit of the oppre- those who are oppressed by poverty or illness or anything else? Do we have eyes to see the needy in our congregation? 
To some of us, I'm not saying this is a calling on every single family or every single person, but to some of us, God is actually calling us to literally care for orphans by, through adoption. Adoption is so beautiful. Adoption is an opportunity for us to be a picture of what God has done for us to a, literally a child who has no parents. To bring them into our family, to make them full members of our family, to love them. It's beautiful. I'm not saying everybody here is called to adoption, but if God is tugging at your heart there, maybe this is the push you need to go there. To be a picture of the kingdom to a young person. We get to be a taste of the kingdom. This, our church, a church, any church should, I'm not saying they do it perfectly, so many, so many churches, including us, fail in different levels of great and small to be the, the way the kingdom should be. But this is our calling. Our calling is to be a picture of the kingdom to the world around us. And even more so to those who are in our community. How will they know we are Christians? The way we love one another. So the scriptures tell us the way we love one another. We get to be a taste of the kingdom. This is an exciting call that God has invited us into to be his hands and feet of instituting the kingdom here on earth. But it's a weighty call. And it's a call that we can only do as we depend on the Lord himself. I challenge us to depend on the Lord, to know him, and so we can be a picture of justice to our community and to the world around us. This morning, if you are someone in this congregation who feels marginalized, who feels like they fit into one of these categories, whether it's, just, whether it's physically and literally or if it's just emotionally, we want you to know that God cares about you. And I hope that our church will be a place where you can experience being a part of his family. God not only brings justice, he also brings salvation. He cares not only about those who have been wronged, he also cares about those who have done wrong. As the great mountains of Bashan in this passage look down on meager Zion, you imagine them in this imagery thinking, well, why would God choose to live there? I am so much greater than them. Why is God choosing to live on this lowly hill called Zion? Why not on the rugged and majestic Bashan mountains? It's because God doesn't choose to live where people are righteous. He chooses to come to those who are not righteous, who are not deserving, who are not worthy, and to make them worthy and to make them righteous. That is how God operates. That's what we see here in verses 19 to 21. It says, Praise be to the Lord, to God our Savior, who daily bears our burdens. Our God is a God who saves from the sovereign Lord comes escape from death. Surely God will crush the heads of his enemies, the hairy crowns of those who go on in their sins. God himself bears the burdens of his people. This is what the cross is all about. On the cross, God takes our guilt upon himself. God takes our shame that is caused by our sin upon himself, and he bears it so that we no longer have to. That is the good news of being God's people. Why does God do that? God does it because he wants restored relationship with us. He wants to forgive us. He wants to have a, re a return to the way we are created to live with him as father and son, as provider and depender. 
And he does this daily. It says daily he bears our burdens for us. Over and over again, he forgives us. Over and over again, he he bears our burdens. This isn't a one-time thing where you repent and all of a sudden you're perfect. No, we know that the Christian life is a life of repentance and faith over and over and over again. It is turning from our sin and turning to him. And you know what he promises? He promises that his mercies are new every morning. New every morning. So today, if you are someone who is caught up in sin, who is living a life that you know is destroying you and those around you who knows that their life is living contrary to what God would have for you, this is an invitation to turn and repent and turn to God and find these new mercies. God isn't waiting for you to make yourself right with him. He's just waiting for you to turn to him and say, Lord, help me. Forgive me. I need your help. And that's who God's people are. Who are God's people? What, is, what are they marked by? They're marked by repentance. They're not marked by self-righteousness. They're marked by repentance. Those who humbly turn from their sins. The difference between a Christian and a non-Christian isn't someone who doesn't sin versus someone who sins. The difference between a Christian and a non-Christian is what they do with their sin. The Christian turns from their sin and they say, God, help me, forgive me, change me. That's what it means to be a Christian. Someone who is not a believer is someone who is described in verse 21. He says, those who go on in their sins. The difference isn't whether they sin or not, it's whether they continued in their sin or they go to the Lord in repentance, asking Him to change. Repentance is turning from and to, turning from our sin and to the Lord. And as a Christian, we are repenting over and over and over again. And as we do, God is changing our hearts more and more to long for Him and not to long for ourselves. In the kingdom where God reigns, sinners find grace and repent and forgiveness. That is, what's, that is what happens where God reigns. There's grace and forgiveness. So that means where God reigns in this church, we need to be a people marked by grace and forgiveness. We need to be a people who are gracious towards one another, who are quick to forgive, who are quick to apologize to one another, who are quick to seek reconciliation when there is conflict. We need to be a people who are humble, people who don't live as if we are righteous and we are better than other people, but people who live in desperate dependence on God's grace for our righteousness, for our standing. We need to be people who live as if the gospel is true, which is freeing. It frees us to be able to share openly that we are not all together. We do not have everything together. We are not perfectly obedient. We are not perfectly righteous. We are struggling with this. I am struggling with that. And we can be honest with that to other people. Why? Because we know the gospel is true, that we are not defined by our sins. We are defined by Christ's work on our behalf. And therefore, we as a community can help one another as we fight sin. As we go back to, we can invite each other to run back to Jesus quickly in repentance. This means that we are not trying to prop ourselves up. We're not trying to look ultra-spiritual. We're not trying to look ultra like we have it all together. We're not trying to look self-righteous. We're trying to look as people who know Jesus and have been shaped by him and are desperately needy of him. This is what our church should look like. I'm not preaching the sermon to say our church doesn't look like this at all, but I am preaching the sermon to say, hey, we can do this even better. We can do this better. The story of Scripture is a story of God 
restoring the world to the way it should be. It's a story of God bringing justice to a world that is not just. It is a story of God bringing salvation to a world that needs salvation. It's a world of God restoring his proper rule over the earth. And as he does, it spreads and it grows and it brings justice and salvation to the entire world. As a father of young children, I have seen on many occasions the film Moana, the Disney film, about the Hawaiian princess who goes on an adventure to try to save the world. What's the problem with the world in Moana? Well, there's this curse the heart of the ocean has been removed from the island of something. I don't know. And uh, it's been taken away. And, but the important thing that I want you guys to hear is that the, as this, the heart of the ocean has been taken away, death starts to spread through the ocean from the middle where this island is out to the edges. And as the time goes by, more and more there are less fish in the ocean, more and more there are dying trees. There's death. It's spreading. There's a curse. So Moana goes on this adventure to return the heart of the ocean. And spoiler alert, she returns the heart of the ocean. And when she does, all of a sudden, as, just as death was spreading, life begins to spread. And as it goes out from the middle and restores things. As, it, as the life touches things, things are restored and made right again. This is the picture that I want us to have of the kingdom and what the church is doing here in the world, what the church should be doing here in the world. It should be a picture of the kingdom that is spreading and bringing life and justice and salvation to all that it touches. And so as the people of God, we need to be a people who have been deeply affected by what Christ has done for us. We need to be a people who know deeply what the price that Christ has paid for us on our behalf, deeply the importance of the resurrection and the way it brings life and rightness to this world. And we need to be people who are thankful to what God has done and his people, but then people who know it so deeply that it just overflows from us so that everyone who encounters the church, everyone who encounters God's people in the world get a taste of the kingdom. That is what our calling is to be. It's an exciting call. It's a weighty call. So let's be that, let's be that people. Let's be the people here. Let's be the people where we go. Let's invite people to come be a part of the kingdom with us. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for uh, your kingship, for being our king, for being a king who's concerned about his people, who cares about those who are marginalized and are hurting, cares about the lonely and the suffering, who also is a God who cares about the, the sinners and longs to make things right where they are wrong. We pray, Lord, that you would mold us into the people you want us to be so that we can be um, a dim reflection, at least, of what your kingdom is like. Um, so people can taste and know that there's something better um, than this world. And taste you. And ultimately not know us, but know you. For all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information or would like to support the ministry of UCB, please visit our website at ucbogota.org.